This week on the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast, we're talking about Abraham Lincoln as seen through the eyes of his contemporaries. Now, now, now. Not five, not four, not two, just three. The Rail Splitter, axe in hand, looking out at a frontier of hope and possibility. In to each other. Party on, dudes! Welcome to the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast. My name is Jeremy. With me today are Rail Splitter Mary. Hey, Rail Splitters. And Rail Splitter Nick. Hey, people. <laughs> oh, Listening to us on electronic devices. Sorry, I was waiting for your customary. Uh, salutation there nick uh welcome to the rail splitter those of you who are listening to us thank you once again for listening this week's episode um i really i don't know if uh, the title is appropriate i didn't really didn't know how to explain what our idea was for this week's show but essentially what we're going to talk about is different takes on lincoln uh, from people who were alive when he was alive most of whom knew him, most of the people we'll talk about knew him uh, but we talk on the show quite a lot about how history remembers Lincoln, about you know the myth that is Lincoln, the reality that is Lincoln, how Lincoln has shaped history moving forward. Uh, so we thought it would be a fun idea just to kind of take a step back and look at how people viewed Lincoln then. Um, and uh, this is something obviously you could probably we could probably fill tons and tons of shows on. So we're just gonna kind of take a handful of uh, different perspectives. Uh, on Lincoln from the uh, from his time, from the mid nineteenth century, and just chat about it. Uh, so that's the topic for today. Um, so I I didn't really normally we start the show with some news where Lincoln has kind of popped up in the news. Uh, we talked last week about how the current president mentioned uh, old honest Abe, I believe is the terms he used. Uh, I didn't really see a whole lot of Lincoln in the news. Did any of either of you uh, see anything? Nope, I didn't. Um, there's been some of that. What's that documentary that's out there? Oh, about that one? right, 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 right. Yes, uh, the uh, Death of a Nation. Yeah, there's been a lot of stuff um, about that going around, and Twitter historians have just been lamb blasting the hell out of it, which has been quite enjoyable. Um, basically, the guy's kind of like, uh, I don't know, comparing. I haven't seen the whole. I have not seen the doc at all. So I don't know, but there is just some parallels drawn, I believe, between Trump and Lincoln and stuff like that. So um, that's the only news I could think of. So kind of playing off of what we talked about last week, though. Yeah, you know, I think I think the premise of that. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I would call it. I don't know what I would call it, but I believe the the work. <laughs> the premise of it is that uh, that. Um, Liberals are the, the racist party, yeah. and that um, Trump may be the next. Lincoln. Um, yes. Yeah. So it's also directed by someone literally who was pardoned by the current president. Um, so obviously there's a vested interest in there. Um, and he's, uh, it's just not, not something that I'm willing to provide any of my money for. So I won't be seeing it. Uh, so I do feel like I, you know, I can't talk too, too much, too badly about it since I do refuse to watch it. Um, that said, uh, everything I've read about it from people who have seen it uh, confirms the belief or the idea that it is a bunch of 
malarkey, to say to use a Joe Biden term, uh, and yeah, definitely not worth. I'm not going to spend the two things I have very little of, which are time and money, <laughs> on it. So, uh, speaking of Biden, him and Obama like went to lunch together the other day. They did, and it was super cool. And that I that was awesome. Um, one other thing, and we're getting a little off topic, so we'll come right back. But um, I was looking for it, kind of in a similar vein, um, a book to read, um, kind of like a vacation type book to read. And there is uh, a book out called Hope Never Dies, uh, which is a mystery thriller that reunites Joe Biden and Barack Obama, uh, and what what they're calling or what Google Books calls a mashup of suspense, intrigue, and laugh out loud bromance. So it's kind of like the pocket watch novel for Obama and Biden. So I think I might have to pick that up. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, like one of my life goals is to have a beer with Biden. That would be awesome. Yeah. He used to seem like a crazy old bastard, dude. Yeah, yeah and he may be running for president. So we'll oh, I see. hope so. Uh, yeah, I, uh, that would be that would be something. I would I would like to have a beer with, with uh, Joe Biden as well. You know, Trump had to help Biden because Biden was always labeled as kind of like this crazy old guy. Now, shit, now he just looks normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of got a, you know, strange, strange effort to cover up baldness, kind of weirdo hairstyle, speaks off the cuff. Uh, says, yeah, I don't know. I like I like Biden's policies. There's some, some stuff about him I'm not quite 100% on, but anyway. Um... So, the topic for today, there's no segue to get back, so I'm just going <laughs> to rip off the Band-Aid and come right back. Uh, topic for today is we're going to talk a little bit about what people from Lincoln's time said about Lincoln. Um, and the first thing that we're going to talk about, or the first um, account we're going to talk about, uh, is one of the most famous. Uh, it is the, the poem, O Captain, My Captain, by Walt Whitman. Uh, and the reason that I wanted to talk about that is because... Um, you know, we talk a lot about history books. We've talked a little bit here and there about historic fiction, too. Uh, well, we've had two historic fiction authors on the show. Um, but uh, this is not a genre or a medium that I'm super well-versed in. See what I did there? Um, poetry. But uh, I think that, you know, we can kind of break this poem down a little bit because I believe it's got to be the most famous poem about Abraham Lincoln. And I think the meaning of it uh, for contemporary audiences may have may have been lost a little bit because it's so closely associated with uh, the film Dead Poet Society. So much so that before we started recording, uh, when we start when we were kind of setting up for it, Nick said, "Isn't that the poem from Dead Poet Society?" Or no, what'd you say? What movie is that from? Something like that. Yeah, something That's like that. about, it's about Robin Williams, isn't it? It well, <laughs> it could be kind of about him now, kind of like Candle in the Wind, maybe. You know, Candle in the Wind was about uh, Marilyn Monroe. Princess Diana. No, but yeah, yeah, exactly. So maybe Old Captain, My Captain is now about Robin Williams, who was obviously a beautiful soul as well. Um, but it was about uh, Abraham Lincoln, specifically um, as a eulogy for him, written not long after he was assassinated. Uh, so what we're going to do is we'll play a reading of it, just because it's so short. Uh, so we'll play you some... I'm not going to read it for you. That was my original plan, and then I realized that would be a terrible idea. Are we going to stand on our desk? You can stand on your desks if you want. That's optional. Um, I don't think you need to. Uh, but it's up to you. I'm not going to tell you how to be. You just do you. Um, so they, let's, stand, they stood on their desk, right, in the scene? 
In Deadpool Society, yes. But the, yes, okay. yes. I was just making sure I wasn't completely off base. Yeah, it was uh yeah, that interesting just yeah, how how the um they sit on this you know, the the big famous scene from Deadpool Society when um Robin Williams' character, who I believe his name was Mr. Keating, gets like escorted out because he's you know, he's being fired and they stand on their desks and they say, Oh captain, my captain and over and over again. So that scene is kinda nice because it's kind of like similarly like at a point where they're they're losing a mentor and recalling that poem um but uh i think that um contemporary folks think about that poem as connected to uh boarding school in new england more than abraham lincoln so we're going to talk about the lincoln context um from walt whitman so here is oh captain my captain this version is read by um tom obedlam um who has a lot of, reads a lot of poems on YouTube, so it's got seven hundred thousand views. So he must be good. So anyway, listen. Here's a listen, and then we will chat about Oh Captain, My Captain. Oh Captain, My Captain, by Walt Whitman. Oh Captain, My Captain, our fearful trip has done. The ship has weathered every rack. The prize we sought is won. The port is near. The bells I hear. The people all exulting while follow eyes the steady keel, the vessel grim and daring. But, O oh, heart, 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 O oh, the bleeding drops of red, where on the deck my captain lies, fallen, cold and dead. O oh, captain, my captain, rise up and hear the bells, rise up, for you the flag is flung, for you the bugle trills, for you the bouquets and ribbon wreaths, for you the shores are crowding, for you they call the swaying mass, their eager faces turning. Here, Captain, dear father, this arm beneath your head. It is some dream that on the deck you've fallen cold and dead. My captain does not answer. His lips are pale and still. My father does not feel my arm. He has no pulse, no will. The ship is anchored safe and sound, its voyage closed and done. From fearful trip the victorship comes in with object one. Exult, O shores, and ring, O bells, but I, with mournful tread, walk the deck my captain lies, fallen, cold, and dead. Okay, so that was O Captain, My Captain, read by Tom Bedlam, and written, of course, by Walt Whitman. Uh, Walt Whitman, just to give you a little bit of a background, um, did serve in the Civil War. I believe he was he worked as a nurse uh, because he was, uh, I don't think he, he was adverse to combat and didn't join the Army, but was a nurse and worked, um, you know, that was quite a gruesome job in those days, obviously, with all of the amputations and the um, death from disease and things along those lines. So I um, definitely saw quite a lot of uh, nastiness in the war for sure. Um, but this poem, I, I think is, um, it's, I'll do my best. I'm not a, not an English teacher. Um, but, um, I, I think that it's much deeper than it's famous. Oh, captain, my captain line. Um, and especially, um, I really like how he kind of starts talking about how the prize is won. Um, and he hears bells and the people are exulting and then how that is contrasted with, his choice of words and the repeated fallen, cold, and dead. Um, the contrast that he, he paints there is pretty striking. Um, and 
um, the kind of somber nature or of him kind of both trying to paint a picture of celebration. Um, he uses the word exulting and, uh, or exalt, exalted. Um, the object won. Uh, the voyage is closed and done. Um, the ship is safe and sound. And then he contrasts that or also kind of uh, in the same work uses cold and dead over and over again and talks about um, how there's no pulse and his lips are pale and still. Um, so I think that 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 resonated with a lot of folks in those times um, and Whitman um, trying to come to terms with uh, the juxtaposition, I guess, at least historically or time-wise, where um, the Union was restored um, and slavery had been abolished and um, what, what lied ahead and then the immediacy of Lincoln's death um, and trying, trying to wrestle with those emotions. I think sometimes that gets overlooked where people don't, you know, once Lincoln becomes that martyr, he solidifies his place in history, I think, but I don't know if it's always appreciated what that did to the country um, and kind of the uncertainty that that would have created in folks when um, it was so, so close to the end of the war and, and just how difficult that had to be for a lot of people to, to deal with. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, you get like a visual of like this, this, you know, this voyage across the sea kind of, you know, they're going through some doors that they've never had to go through and it's pretty much him that got them through it, you know. And then right before they finally get back home, you know, he passes away. Um, and kind of the way he talks about it, you know, it, it was like he was the captain that did it. He was the one that led him through the store. Um, and, and the tragedy of it is he, he never got to see, you know, um, kiss, you know, the homeland again, um, in the poem anyways. So, and I think that is one of the tragedies of it. You know, Lincoln guides the ship through it, the ship being the union gets it through it. And then right when he's about to, you know, um, see, um, I don't know, right when it was about to come to the end and America's going to come together, he, it's no longer for him. Uh, which is one of the great tragedies of uh, Lincoln and the Civil War, I think. Yeah, and I really enjoy, and I like how you were talking, Nick, about the imagery of the of the ship or the boat or the vessel um, and the use of the word captain um, because it kind of, you know, for me it doesn't conjure up this image of someone navigating um, an entire nation through its most significant crisis uh, and one of the most significant crises in history. Um, you get this image of, with especially with the words "my captain," that it was that people had more of a personal connection somehow with, with him, especially in death, and this feeling that um, he's still like kind of, in, kind of in this exalted position, but yet we're all in this together, kind of like you know we all kind of do our part on a ship or a boat, um, and um, that yet his control and leadership over it was so significant like a ship's captain's leadership is just so um, vital to, to the cause. Um, so, you know, pick it up on your my captain thing there. I think it's more powerful that he has like, oh, captain, my captain. It's like he spoke, oh, captain. Then he thought to himself, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's more than that to me, my captain. Whereas if you didn't have that, oh, captain, I don't know that my captain's that significant, at least to me. 
Um, maybe I'm just full of shit, though. Oh, well, I'm definitely. <laughs> no, yeah, I, but... I agree with that. So I, I think that's powerful. Sorry to cut you off there. Not at all. And and I think that makes that brings up a good point. And uh, this may just be the version I'm looking at, but I there's exclamation points after captain, oh, captain, exclamation mm-hmm. point, my captain, exclamation point. So, like, those are two separate sentences or separate you know exclamations um so it's not as if you know it's not like the dead poet society like oh captain my captain as if like it was all one thing in there that's how they address him perhaps um but yeah it's it's a it's the salutation and then also the kind of putting that possessive in there um it kind of conjures up the opposite of not my president feeling for me you know how people always say like you know hashtag not my president when they're frustrated with the political situation or when the you know when the president says something racist about lebron james or whatever like oh you know what an asshole hashtag not my president but i feel i feel like the opposite with this when you say oh captain my captain when you look at him and you say like you know he, he is one of us like i i can consider him mine not in a possessive way necessarily but in a patriotic way Mm -hmm. Mary, what you got? Um, I was just thinking how the poem starts off so like optimistic with, like you said, Nick, like we've weathered these storms and it just, it doesn't become happy at the end. I mean, obviously it wouldn't because it's a mourning poem, Um, but just some of the imagery, you know, how he's saying to the captain, like rise back up again. It's for you that there's bouquets and, and wreaths and there's people coming out to cheer what you've done and yet the captain doesn't rise up so it's almost as if you know whitman as well as the rest of the you know the nation was struggling with lincoln not being around anymore and just like the last you know lines but i with mournful tread walk the deck my captain lies fallen cold and dead like it's so just it starts off so optimistic but then it ends like you know very very sad yeah, I, I like that too because it's not, it doesn't fall into that cliche like, you know, he's in a better place or we've given him mm-hmm. to whatever. Um, what it's saying is, you know, cold and dead. He has no pulse nor will. But yet there is the, um, with mournful tread, I, you know, I walk the deck where my captain lies. So, you know, there is a bit of an acknowledgement that, that there's, you know, that we need to walk, walk that deck as well, so to speak. Um, and that, you know, the, the finality of his assassination, um, is not something that, you know, is, is, is absolute. However, there is still work to be done for, for, for us. So it's, you know, it, I like how that third stanza kind of is a little bit more about, um, you know, the next, I guess the next phase with, you know, talk, start, starting that last part with the victorship comes in with object one um exultal shores and ring o bells so there, it is a time of celebration and then he brings it back down with the fallen cold and dead so um so yeah i think that that's a it's a you know obviously you know we're doing <laughs> i'm doing the best i can i'm not you know breaking down poetry i don't read as much poetry um as i should i suppose uh but this is a famous poem and like i said probably the most famous poem specifically about abraham lincoln um certainly written in his time um, written right after he was assassinated, um, and I think really captures the spirit, certainly of at least Walt Whitman. Um, so, 
so yeah, that was that's that's that was kind of the first take from a contemporary of Lincoln's that we wanted to chat about. Um, I know Mary, you had mentioned you were going to bring in some some of the military side of things mm-hmm. um, from some folks that uh, knew Lincoln. Yep, um, the one that I um, have done I've done research on in the past for different blog posts was General Sherman. Obviously, why not? You, you don't say. <laughs> really. <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, Sherman started off, um, not really kind of neutral on Lincoln. He was in Louisiana for the 1860 election and he actually did not vote for anybody. And, um, he said that when Lincoln was elected, he said the election of Mr. Lincoln fell upon us like a clap of thunder. And Sherman goes on to say that he continued to kind of remain aloof of politics and he just hoped that the the storm would blow over. And his first meeting with Lincoln at the White House, uh, in Sherman's eyes, probably didn't go so well. Uh, He met Lincoln with his brother, John, who was a senator. And uh, John said to Lincoln, here's my brother, he's been in Louisiana. And Lincoln turned to Sherman and said, how are they getting along down there? And Sherman responded, they think they are getting along swimmingly. They are preparing for war. And Lincoln just said kind of nonchalantly, oh, well, I guess we'll manage to keep house. And that didn't make Sherman very happy. He said to his brother on the way out, you politicians have got things in a hell of a fix. And you can keep them, you can fix, work them out as best you can. And he also adds that the country is sleeping on a volcano that could burst forth at any moment. Um, So at that point, his opinion of Lincoln, I don't think was too great. Um, But he met Lincoln again after the first Battle of Bull Run. And he hops in a carriage with him and William Seward. And he starts to talk to them. And he says, please discourage all cheering, noise, or any confusion. What we needed were cool, thoughtful, hard-fighting soldiers. No more hurrahing or humbug. And Lincoln later, kind of using his sense of humor, plays into this and says to the soldiers he's addressing, don't cheer, boys. I confess I rather like it myself. But Colonel Sherman here says it is not military. And um, in my favorite Sherman biography uh, called Fierce Patriot by Robert L. O'Connell, O'Connell actually says that it, back in his first meeting with Sherman at the White House that Lincoln became very fond of him. Um, but then by the end of the war, uh, Sherman had grown to like and respect Lincoln quite a bit. And in his memoirs, he has, like he says that um, after Sherman leaves, when they're, they have that peacemakers conference on the River Queen, um, I think it's at the end of March in 1865, Sherman says, I know when I left him that I was more than ever impressed by his kindly nature. And he also says, in the language of his second inaugural address, he seemed to have charity for all, malice toward none, and above all, an absolute faith in the courage, manliness, and integrity of the armies in the field. When at rest or listening, his legs and arms seemed to hang almost lifeless, and his face was careworn and haggard. But the moment he began to talk, his face lighted up, his tall form, as it were, unfolded, and he was the very impersonation of good humor and fellowship. The last words I recall as addressed to me were that he would feel better when he knew I was back at Goldsboro. We parted at the gangway of the River Queen about noon on March 28th, and I never saw, saw him again. Of all the men I ever met, he seemed to possess more of the elements of greatness combined with goodness than any other. So that's kind of going from somebody who wasn't in a neutral 
to, he clearly had a huge impression on, made a huge impression on Sherman, and Sherman took it to the point where the um, the peace terms he made with Johnson were what he thought that Lincoln would have wanted. So he was, I think, trying to keep you know Lincoln in his mind, even though Lincoln um, was gone by that point. Um, and General Grant said something very different, or said something very similar. Said that he was Lincoln was the greatest man he ever knew. So I think he, like Lincoln, did command very much respect from those two generals. Yeah, um, and I I really like how um, you kind of look at how the relationship changed over time, um, and specifically the difference in what what well Sherman specifically. Uh, thought of Lincoln early in the war when he first met him and then how he remembered him. Um, Cause I think that that's important to, to take note of. And I think that gets missed a lot that Lincoln wasn't the most well-liked president. I think we talked about that a little bit with our current presidents uh, talking, you know, talking about approval ratings and stuff. Like he wasn't the legend. It wasn't the, you know, everybody's favorite president, uh, then by any means, um, even among his supporters. And I think that that's definitely, I think probably going to be a theme, uh, throughout all of these things we're going to talk about tonight, uh, which is, uh, how the feelings about Lincoln changed after he died. Um, but I don't think that that's unique to Lincoln by any means. Well, I think there's a lot too of people who kind of their impression of Lincoln changed the more they got to know him. I mean, we see that amongst several of his cabinet members, you know, from Sherman. You know, he kind of came in as an outsider in a sense. You know, this guy from out west, um, you know, he's got the reputation of rail splitter and this stuff. You know, he kind of handles himself differently with storytelling. Um, and it caught a lot of people off guard, I, I think. Um, and they didn't know how to react. Then as time grew on and the more they got to know him, they saw the wisdom behind it. Um, and, and you hear this a lot. I mean... Um, especially with some of the people in the cabinet. So, um, and, you know, you see Sherman kind of the same way. So, um, yeah, I mean, Lincoln just evolving. This is how we talk about Lincoln evolving. People's impression of Lincoln evolved over time as well. Yeah, and I think the main, one of the main cabinet members that didn't have a very opinion of him was Stanton. Mm-hmm. And that definitely changed over time. Yes, yes, very, very much so. Um, and, and and I think, yeah, that's fueled a lot of conspiracy theories because a lot of people point to what Stanton said very early in his um, interactions of Lincoln about Lincoln and then use that to create this idea that he, you know, possibly even participated in the assassination, which mm-hmm. is absurd and widely yeah. debunked. Um, but, yeah, Stanton's uh, opinion of him, uh, changed dramatically from getting to know him, and you know, keeping in mind that this is, you know, this was not a, obviously not in the digital age where people, you know, you could kind of have the reputation of whatever, but you, you know, you've got scores and scores of videos online or wherever to prove it. Like people had an idea of Lincoln. A lot of it was, you know, a lot of people who probably knew couldn't trust the political pamphlets and stuff because obviously that was not necessarily reality. But so they, had, you know they kind of formed their opinions on based on little information because that's all the information they had. Um, so Stanton's um, uh, opinion of him, I think was widely, widely known to not be great. And then, you know, Lincoln in his 
uh, Wisdom still put him on the cabinet after Simon Cameron resigned, uh, and you know they developed quite quite a good relationship, um, and it's kind of fun to. I think that's played up. You know, I know we bring the movie up from time to time, but it's kind of fun to see that part of the movie where uh, Stanton's kind of annoyed with him, but you can kind of see that playful um, banter back and forth between the two of them. Is that in Vampire Hunter or is that? Oh, in- sorry, sorry for me not the Spielberg, the Spielberg film. Sorry. When you say the movie, now you have to make sure you're clear on which one we're talking about. Yes. I, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I think Seward too. Um, you know, you look back at how Seward uh, around like Fort Sumter and all that, how he's trying to tell Lincoln what to do, mm-hmm. and uh, there was the rumors about that Seward wanted to be like a dictator or something. And then it, I don't know, the progression of that seems to be of one where Seward comes to have just like an incredible respect for Lincoln. Um, and you, again, you can see that in the, in the movie Lincoln that, you know, Seward is still telling him like, well, here's what I think you should do. And Lincoln will kind of, you know, nod and say, yeah, okay. And he'll take it under consideration. Mm-hmm. And uh, Seward, don't mean to correct somebody yet again on the show, but... <laughs> Is that the real spinner drinking game? That's right. That's right. Still alive and well. Um, so uh, one other um, contemporary of Lincoln that I wanted to talk about was Frederick Douglass. Um, and I think you'll find a lot of similarities. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's a contemporary of Trump now, isn't it? Yeah, Fred, Fred Douglass is doing great work. Hey, Fred, anybody? Fred? Is Fred here? No, Fred? Okay. Man, you guys are making mistakes all over the place. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So, yeah, this this was very early on in the current administration when the president mentioned Frederick Douglass and, cl- to me at least, clearly thought that the person was still alive. Uh, Frederick Douglass did, did leave quite, lead quite a long life, but not that long. <laughs> um, but Frederick Douglass, obviously, the very well-known abolitionist, former, uh, he was formerly enslaved and... Um, Worked him, you know, worked himself out of slavery. Went over to England, um, you know, had learned to read or read and write, and um, continued his education. Uh, wrote um, several autobiographies, but um, the Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, I think, is the most well known. Um, and he, his take on Lincoln, I think, is one of the most important. One because we have it from someone who was enslaved and someone who was a very, probably the most prominent figure in the black community. Um, but also someone who was very highly critical of Lincoln in his while Lincoln was alive and when they were working together, and now you know then later on uh, was very very heavily praised Lincoln, very very much um, adored Lincoln, um, and I think that it's important to look at that, and I think you get a bit more of a feel for what their. Uh, you know, kind of more about like reality. Um, and I think it's very similar to, um, cause even now when, when like I look back at the Obama administration, there was things that president Obama did that, um, I didn't necessarily agree with or didn't think, you know, like he took his time on marriage equality to, you know, to a degree that I thought was a little, um, frustrating at times, I suppose. But now looking back on him, I'm like, man, gosh, you know, what, what a perfect human being. And, you know, we kind of already are kind of building him up, or at least I'm kind of already building him up. Not to, not that he doesn't deserve it, and I think Lincoln deserves it as well, um, but there's a difference between looking back on someone's life 
and working with that person. For example, Douglas worked very hard with Abraham Lincoln to have, well, first to have uh, black soldiers fighting for the Union. Once that happened, which of course was slow and, you know, wasn't, the progress was slow and frustratingly slow for many. Once that happened, um, they didn't get equal pay. So Frederick Douglass was fighting for equal pay for uh, members of black units um, and Lincoln was slow to react and, and didn't really um, acquiesce to that request, uh, which really frustrated Douglass. And Douglass said a lot of, you know, a lot of negative things, I suppose, about Lincoln, rightfully. Um, it was very highly critical of him. But then later on in uh, after Lincoln had passed, when Douglass was asked to speak um, at some monuments, at the Freedman Monument in 1876, um, and then later on, in kind of a eulogy, um, commemorating Link, what would have been Lincoln's 79th birthday, um, he was very, very praiseworthy of Lincoln. Um, so, so much so that um, in one speech in 1876, uh, he referred to uh, Lincoln saying that he was preeminently the white man's president. Um, and then later on, he referred to Lincoln as the black man's president. So... Um, you can see that there was kind of an, I don't, I don't even necessarily say an evolution, but I think there is a little bit of value to that historical hindsight where uh, you can look back and say, look at what, what Lincoln did, look at what his career was, and to really acknowledge like, yes, I mean, there are many things I disagreed with him on, um, but relative to literally anyone else, probably he did more. Um, and led more passionately and probably did things that would not have been accomplished had had he just acquiesced and said, like, and, you know, truly did the right thing and said, like, yes, they deserve equal pay or, yes, they should go in the military right away. That may not have worked, you know. That, that, that's the difference between being an abolitionist and being a politician or being an abolitionist and being president. Um, abolitionists very clearly have one very specific goal in mind. Politicians have to get it done. And because Lincoln had to get it done, he couldn't be 100% one way or the other, at least outwardly. Um, I don't believe for a second that Lincoln was ever anything but an abolitionist, but by trade, he was a politician. So it was not, it was not something that he could have been all abolition all the time because it would have actually been counterproductive. Nope. Agreed. That's my go-to when there's silence for more than four Well, seconds. I just feel like I'm rambling sometimes, so I just stop talking and hopefully <laughs> well, somebody fills the space. I completely agree, too. That was perfect, Jeremy. Um, so, and, and really the best, um, and it's kind of difficult to summarize in a podcast, but like the best examples of um, Douglas's feelings toward Lincoln come through in his speeches, the, the one at the Freedmen's Monument, um, and, then, and then the one commemorating Lincoln's 79th birthday, are really the two probably... Um, best examples, uh, but to really look at their um, relationship as a whole and kind of how that developed, because both of those speeches were actually given after Lincoln had passed. Um, and I think a lot of times um, folks kind of look toward Fred Frederick Douglass when trying to reconcile difficulties with Abraham Lincoln when they're, you know, when we're like, oh man, he, he said some pretty, pretty, you know, troubling things in his life. And he certainly did. And, um, you know, he, 
certainly said things that would be now just just horribly offensive and and just viciously racist um now so you know it's so difficult to try to get a get it to wrap your head around what is it what was that like in the mid-19th century um so i think a lot of folks turned to douglas to say like well if douglas was okay with it we can all be okay with it right because he was an abolitionist and he was you know he had been enslaved you know um there's you know him him having having that perspective i think gives him the gives him the credibility to to really talk about it um and i think that there's some value to that i don't i think that that um obviously you want to make your own opinion but using douglas's endorsement of lincoln later on in life as a kind of justification for for our adoration of lincoln i don't think there's anything wrong with that necessarily um at all um, there's that famous quote from Douglas in, uh, Ken Burns Civil War, of course, voiced by Morgan Freeman. Like that was like Morgan Freeman doing voiceovers before Morgan Freeman did voiceovers. Um, so super cool. But, um, anyway, talking about, um, uh, John Brown, uh, and talking about, you know, when, when John Brown led the, the trying, trying to create a slave revolt and trying to get slaves to take arms against, um, they're slaveholders, um, and, and eventually overthrow slavery through rebellion, um, knowing that he was probably going to die. Frederick Douglass's famous quote was Frederick Douglass speaking, um, I will live for the slave, but John Brown died for them. Um, talking about how his commitment to abolition was actually much stronger than Frederick Douglass's. Um, so I think Abraham Lincoln also dying for the cause, um, in many ways, I think at least for Douglas, solidified um, really what Lincoln was about. Um, so I think that played a lot into that transition from being critical of um, of Lincoln to to really really embracing him um, later on in his life. Uh, but I do think that that there is quite a lot of value in really looking at what Douglas thought of Lincoln as the leading abolitionist of the time. No, I think that's that's very important, and kind of also showing you know the the power of time, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and kind of you know to think back, reflect on stuff, um, which kind of what we're talking about here with Douglas, right? And uh, it doesn't and it doesn't always swing positive, um, you know. It's it's an interesting way that the folks talk about history, like you know sometimes you know I think that there's there's quite a few presidents who were viewed at so so positively and then in hindsight is like well i don't you know maybe maybe not um you know i think um jefferson comes to mind as one who um, at least in, in the context of his presidency um you know did quite a lot of things that, that maybe are kind of you know now looked at as you know not probably may, may not be quite as as positive john adams is another one um, with the sedition acts and things like that. Um, interestingly, I think Grant has, is the, the one president who got to experience both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause like he was a wildly popular president, overwhelmingly reelected for two terms, could have easily gone, you know, won a third, um, uh, almost did win a third, um, unconventionally, uh, very, very, uh, extremely popular you know, if they had approval ratings then in the Republican Party, they probably would have been the highest ever. Not that that matters. Um, and then history kind of, you know, 
you know, decade after decade started to hate on him more and more. And, like, I remember I had a book when I was a kid that, like, ranked presidents, and the lowest rank you could get was failure. And he was listed as failure. Um, and it was, but in, in like, that was just kind of, like, the, the common take from a lot of, like, early history, but, you know, not early, early in my life, stuff that I read 20, 25 years ago. Um, and now that it's like trendy to, to, to really value his presidency and to say that he was actually a very strong, you know, a strong president. And it was almost, I think for a while there was kind of like, like, well, I'm going to be contrarian here. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take the opposite take. And a lot of people are on board with that. And now, you know, with the, the two books that were just published mm-hmm. uh, by White and Chernow, um, Grant's making a comeback. So I think he's one of the few that's kind of enjoyed, I mean, I know every president has positive bios and negative bios and in the middle and whatever else. But I'm thinking more generally speaking, in that historic hindsight, when we're evaluating the effectiveness of presidents, Grant, I think, stands alone, or at least is is the most significant one that had both. Um, Lincoln, obviously, has been on an upward trajectory the entire time. Um, for a short time there, I think it was kind of yeah, popular to knock him down a couple pegs, which probably wasn't a bad thing. Um, but yeah, Grant now is kind of experiencing that upswing that he probably deserves. I would definitely agree with that. Like I went into reading White's bio of Grant called American Ulysses, which I would highly recommend reading. Um, thinking, okay, he had like not a great presidency, but I came away from it respecting him more. Like, yeah, there was a lot of corruption during it, but on the whole, I don't think he was a horrible president. Um, I've yet to read Chernow's biography. Um, I've read one by, uh, the author's name is Brands and he has a positive take too, I think on his presidency as well. There was just a lot of corruption involved in it though. Right. And I think, um, coming after Johnson, who, I mean, was impeached and had, exactly, had his yeah. own issues and then leading into Hayes, who mm-hmm. you know, effectively ended the Freedmen's Bureau and much of the positive gains of reconstruction. Um, I, th- I think really what, what folks have realized is an overemphasis of the corruption and an underemphasis uh, on things like the Freedmen's Bureau mm-hmm. and all of those reconstruction ideas um, that I think got lost. I think the role of race got lost in that a lot too. I think yeah. a lot of folks look at reconstruction in a literal sense, like, like, re- like literally rebuilding the South um, because of war um, as opposed to, um, making sure that the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments actually held that, uh, there were some supports for people who were, you know, had been enslaved and were immediately now not enslaved. What, like, what do they do? Um, and putting supports in place. And then really the travesty that happened when, um, Hayes decided or the Republican party with the election of Hayes ended all of those things, which my argument is always, and I think I've probably mentioned this on the show, that's when the Republican party, when the party of Lincoln became the Republican party of today, I believe most significantly was at that point. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, it's, you know, we started, <laughs> I started the show saying like, yeah, we talk so much about people are viewed in history. Now let's talk about how people are viewed in history then. And then we are right back to what we would normally do, but that, that topic kind of fascinates mm-hmm. me anyway. So mm-hmm. there well, is one. Oh, sorry. You go ahead. I was going to say there is one person that I wanted to include in my generals, but everybody knows what he thought of Lincoln. Who's and that? that's Mc, McClellan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but see, like that, I, I really like that you brought that up, though, because it's like funny now. 
Oh, yeah, you know, it is. It's hilarious. And, and, and that, I think, also is important to look at that in its time because he was a political rival um, and was not the clown that we think him of, you know, think of him now. Like, now we, he's kind of like this caricature of this, mm-hmm. like, angry, short guy that, that nobody had any respect for, which was not the case. His troops really adored him. I mean, they, they had a huge amounts of respect for him, um, believed in him. Uh, would stand behind him, and that I think. Well, really... I'd stand behind a general who never sent me into battle too. I, yeah, I get that, <laughs> but true. but but he also Not drilled either. them into the ground too. I mean, there's something uh-huh. to be said for that. Like he never he he, he wasn't buddy buddy with them. He was you know very authoritative, and they drilled. I mean, he prepared that army for combat, and that can't be overlooked. Like his role in winning the war is actually, I believe, significant in preparing that 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 army to fight um i think that his popularity with the enlisted men in how unpopular it was when lincoln had to fire him multiple times really speaks to lincoln's political genius and um and just how significant that election of 1864 was when lincoln defeated mcclellan because he overcame that and actually won the support of the troops overwhelmingly um Mm -hmm. The other thing, too, and I'm not a McClellan defender, although I am defending him now. Um, the one thing about McClellan that we have that we don't have for many other people is, like, looking into personal correspondence. Like, you know, oh, it almost feels, like, intrusive. Right you know, like, like who's who doesn't complain about their boss to their spouse? You know what I mean? Like, it's, like, a fairly normal thing to do. Um, I mean, his words are pretty colorful and, you know... It's you know somewhat entertaining now to to read it, but like I think that gets blown up so huge too that like McClellan, you know, is looked at as this like complete jerk because we're reading his personal correspondence, you know, with with a trust someone who we trust more than anybody else. It's not as if he's writing editorials to newspapers saying, you know, what an idiot Lincoln was. Um, so you know I think that it's important to note. I think there's probably other generals who probably had similar feelings about Lincoln. Um, mm-hmm. whose letters we don't, whose letters to their wives we don't have, um, or who just did it in conversation, you know. Um, so, but yeah, I think that McClellan, uh, McClellan's opinion of Lincoln uh, certainly wasn't a secret, and it's not a secret now, and that's definitely not one that, that changed <laughs> over time no. at all. No. I have a whole book of his, um, well, selected correspondence, mm-hmm. um, so it's, stuff that he wrote to Lincoln, stuff that he wrote to the, you know, War Department, to Stanton, as well as to his wife. And the letters, like reading them are sometimes, it's almost, it's like, is this real? Like, is he actually writing in this way? They're very, I don't know, what, like, it's kind of like Monty Python, like, I guess, like, mm-hmm. of comicalness to them, the way he addresses Lincoln, but then like the next letter he's bashing him to his wife and again it goes back to this whole like this is stuff that he didn't intend for anybody to see but it's interesting to like look into that part of it too yeah it's certainly worth looking into I, i'm not saying mm-hmm. it shouldn't be looked into i'm just i just think you gotta acknowledge yeah what, what it, it is yeah what, yeah. yeah exactly yeah yeah but his yeah that was when i didn't even consider talking about mcclellan so i was like well everybody knows what he thought <laughs> you know yeah. he didn't you know he never liked him <laughs> Uh, ran against him you know clearly so um but yeah like we didn't and that that was the primary mode of communication too so we have no choice but to look at it and 
and yeah. to form our opinions based based on that kind of stuff. So, um, did either of you have any other uh, takes on Lincoln that you wanted to to talk about? Yeah, I do actually. Um, so when this came across the twi- uh the text feed, I was like, oh shit, I don't know what the hell to talk about. But then I came across something uh, today when I, you know, I was doing my crack research here, <laughs> and um, there were five ex presidents alive when Lincoln took the office. So I thought this was rather fascinating. You got Martin Van Buren, uh, the eighth president, you know, kind of the founder of modern day political parties. John Tyler, you know, he kind of sets the legacy of what to do when the president dies in office. His grandkids are still alive, by the way. Yes. And then you got the 13th president, uh, the jackass Miller Fillmore. (laughs) And then Franklin Pierce Pierce is the 14th and James Buchanan the 15th. Right there, is there a shittier run of three presidents? Is there any... Could we string together three more consecutive presidents any shittier than Fillmore, Pierce, and Buchanan? That's what I want to know, first of all. No. You can't. I don't think you can. Uh, No, but they they were, you know, I think if you do, they're probably also included. I mean, not Buchanan, but, you know, like that whole string of one-termers from Jackson all the way to Lincoln, right? They were all one-termers, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, so like like none of those really emerged as – you know, the office of the presidency almost, like, was losing prestige because, you know, like, arguably at a low point with Buchanan because of just completely ineffective leadership. Because yeah. those were the days of Clay and Calhoun and Webster. Like, like the, the, the names that we know from those times were people in Congress because they yeah. arguably had more authority or more um, influence. Uh, than, than the White House. But yeah, I don't think you could. And if you did, you'd probably just like also include those guys and people that were before them. Polk, maybe. I mean, I know there's the Mexican American War, but, you know, uh, Taylor. Any of those, you know, yeah, it's. There's not a lot. Not a lot there. So that, then uh, I came across there's a book out there. Obviously, I didn't have time to read it because I can't read quite that quick. Um, but there is The President's War, Six American Presidents and the Civil War that Divided Them by Chris DeRose. Basically, he looks at these five presidents and kind of how they responded to Lincoln handling that. So I kind of springboard off that and just kind of dove into it um, a little bit more. And, you know, I think pre-Trump, I think we kind of lived in an era where, like, ex-presidents and the president, it's a club. They're pretty exclusive. They kind of, you know, support each other. Uh, maybe not verbally as much, but, you know, I, I just think of George H.W. Bush and Clint working together in some of the fundraisers that they did. Here's two people who went head-to-head in, in a presidential election who are getting along and doing stuff. Uh, but that wasn't the case, really, at all in Lincoln's time. I mean, you had all these presidents pretty much went against Lincoln um, at some point, if not for the duration of his time going in there. I mean, Van Buren... Um, he does die in 62, July, but he was very critical of Buchanan, but he will not support Lincoln. Um, but he'll kind of be the least active of most of the ex-presidents. The one I find account really fascinating all this was John Tyler. 1861, November, they actually, there's a peace conference at the famous Willard Hotel in D.C., where about 132 delegates come and they try to prevent the Civil War, basically. So the goal of the convention was hopefully to find a compromise 
um, that would, you know, make both sides happy. And the main goal at this time was really to end or to keep the upper South from succeeding because by this time you already had seven states has succeeded. And they actually created a 13th Amendment out of this uh, convention. And basically the 13th Amendment was going to keep slavery in the South, barred in the North. However, under certain circumstances, it would be permitted um, to expand. Um, so that's what they came out of it. You know, they met for about three weeks breaking this stuff down. The Senate actually voted on it 28-7 uh, and against it. The House never even considered it. Um, and then Tyler will actually be elected to Congress, die before he serves, but he's really the only president to die an enemy of the country that he serves. I mean, that's kind of mind-boggling when you think about it. So yeah, and, um, I don't know if that came through 100%. Like, what, what was he elected for and died before he served? He was elected uh, to the Confederate Congress. Right, the Confederate Congress. I, yeah, that, I don't yeah. know if that came across on the feed or not. Um, I, I just learned that as well. Not, I mean, I guess I, I think I had known that, but like I had come across that not that long ago. That is shocking to me. Um, that, uh, And I think, I don't know why that's not talked about more often, that a, a former president of the United States ran for office for a group rebelling against the United States. It's just amazing to me. Um, and he still has grandchildren who are alive. Does that he? gets brought up all the time, yeah. which is actually pretty interesting. But Yeah, he uh, yes. he had children way late in life who also had children way, way, way late in life. And uh, they're old now, so I mean, it's, it's not going to be very much longer. But the 10th president of the United States has grandchildren who are still alive. Because uh, he had 15 kids. Um, and like the, the youngest were born. I think he was, he was pretty old. Yeah. And then he was from Virginia, um, as well. Where Van Buren, I think, is he a New York guy, Van Buren? I think so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe Massachusetts. I don't know. And then, uh, we got Miller Fillmore, who's from the mistake by the lake, Buffalo. I know that's not really how it goes, but, um, yeah, Kinderhook, New York. I knew that. Yeah. Uh, you got Fillmore. Um, he actually supported the Union when the war broke out. He actually writes Lincoln a letter, um, basically saying, "I approve most cordially of the firm stand which you have taken in support of the Constitution as it is against insane abolitionism on one side and rebellious secessionism on the other." So obviously um, he will become very divided once the Emancipation Proclamation comes out. So, um, which you get kind of from that quote. And this letter actually came during the Trent Affair. So the Trent Affair is when the Union warship stopped the British um, ship that had two Confederate diplomats, um, and then America arrested those two diplomats. And Britain was pissed because it they felt like their neutrality was being violated. So he kind of writes him a letter trying to intervene there, really encouraging him not to go to war with Britain, which obviously I think Lincoln knew and understood. Um, so that's kind of the, one of the main correspondence they had. But as soon as the Emancipation Proclamation comes around, you know, he becomes very critical of him. Um, so kind of Fillmore was there to keep the, the Union together, but he wasn't willing to do it to get rid of slavery. Um, and he will actually vote against Lincoln in 1864. Um, so, and then you have Franklin Pierce, you know, Pierce is really worthless too. 
I, I don't know why I don't make fun of this jackass more. Um, <laughs> Jefferson Davis actually served in Pierce's, uh, he was a secretary of war for him during his presidency. Um, so he actually had some correspondence with Pierce during the Civil War. As soon as Lincoln called for volunteers, basically Pierce is quote saying, I will never justify, sustain, or in any way, to any extent, uphold this cruel, heartless, aimless, unnecessary war. Um, he was quoted as saying, it's an aggressive war of conquest. So he thought the Union should have played defensive. But, I mean, that, that's stupid. If we just play defensive war, then they just go out on their own, don't they? I mean, mm -hmm. jackass right there. Um he was obviously came out very strongly against the Emancipation Proclamation. And then now this is where the funny part comes in. Uh, well, I'll say he also didn't vote for Lincoln in 64. Uh, July 4th, 1863. He's given a speech, Democratic rally. He's talking about the Civil War. It's basically along the line, fearful, fruitless, and fatal war. And then the news of the Gettysburg victory comes out. <laughs> Oops. What a, yeah. What a jackass. Oops. Yeah, and Nick, to a couple of your points I was looking at, because um, I was looking up the Tyler stuff, and Tyler's son actually emerged as one of the loudest critics of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, so Tyler's son, uh, Tyler had two kids, uh, in, one in 1858, I believe, and one in 1860, uh, when he was like in his late 60s. Uh, and, then, and then his son who was actually born uh, the second youngest of those 15 kids, um, also married somebody 35 years younger than he was, so he had kids very late in life too. So um, they were born in the late 1920s, and they're uh, still with us. Uh, but his son emerged as um, a huge critic of Abraham Lincoln, so much so that Time magazine ran uh, a major story comparing Lincoln and Tyler claiming that Tyler, that Lincoln dwarfed Tyler, not only physically, but as a president. And then Tyler, <laughs> Tyler's kid's retort was like, no, Lincoln was a dwarf. <laughs> um, so, uh, but like he was on like a lifelong crusade against Lincoln and published and published many articles, um, had his own magazine. And basically it was like a Lincoln bashing thing. Um, so, which is pretty fascinating. Um, and then he still has children who are alive. So, um, yeah, that's kind of an interesting little confluence of trivia. But yeah, the, how the former presidents and that, and I and I and maybe I kind of overlooked it because I always talk about how like the office of former president wasn't really a thing until recently. People like Jimmy Carter and and Bush Bush forty one and Clinton and now you know Obama and Bush forty three like are actually doing stuff as former presidents. Like they they become elder statesmen and have causes and do things. Whereas before they didn't really do it, but apparently this is may that may have been a little naive of me because they did still write things and apparently hold rallies and they were actually more political then and now they're not political they're just more kind of philanthropic so yeah but anyway um, we'll definitely revisit this topic because I think it's important and we'll, I'm sure we'll do it indirectly and we might do it directly again where we where we really talk about what uh, what were what were people saying about Lincoln in the 1860s or 1870s, people who knew him and were around him, or people who didn't uh, but were well-known? I think there's uh, quite a lot of works, like George Templeton Strong, for example, would be a good person because he didn't actually know Lincoln but was a very well-respected writer. Um, other folks, um, maybe even some, some people from the South, um, if we can find some more positive ones too, that'd be kind of interesting too. So we'll revisit this topic. If you have anything uh, interesting that you were thinking of about some contemporaries of Lincoln and what they thought of him, um, go ahead and throw those on the Facebook group or 
um, Twitter, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. And please uh, give us a rating or review on iTunes if you get a chance. That's super helpful. Hey, we got a new one. Oh, did we? All right. I will, yeah. uh, all right. Why don't we go over our social media post and then I will read that on the air. So we have our weekly feature of the people by the people where we talk about a social media post that struck us uh, this week. Uh, so Mary or Nick, would you like to start with that? I can start. You Let's do it. Uh, so mine is very, it's kind of just, it's just a simple one this week. Um, one of my followers on Twitter, Ty, um, it's Fleeta 1966. He was at the Smithsonian and he tweeted me a photo of one of my favorite Lincoln artifacts, which is the top hat. And when I saw that, I just thought that's really awesome. So I retweeted it and I got some responses. One of them was from Dr. Stacy, who we've had on the show. And she said that that particular object gives her, you know, the shivers or whatever. And I have to agree. And others responded saying it's their favorite Lincoln artifact. But I just, you know, it made me think of how something it, like a hat is something that's so powerful and so significant. You can look at it and you can think, that belong to Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, I have seen a hat that has been purported to belong to Lincoln. It is quite mm-hmm. quite moving. Nick, what do you got? Mine comes from the Rail Splitter Facebook group, which is 129. Um, it's from Eric Lee last Friday, and I'll just read his post here. I'm sure most folks on here know this already, but there's a town named after Lincoln north of Springfield. Their high school mascot is the rail splitters. Their colors are red and green because Lincoln supposedly christened the town with watermelon juice uh, when he was there. So saw that kind of interesting. And I think Lincoln of the Ages also tweeted out something similar to that about five days ago. Um, yes, Lincoln Belongs to the Ages also tweeted out something because it was National Watermelon Day five yep. days ago. But you guys didn't know that. Um, so... I thought that was interesting, kind of a cool story. Yeah, I, I noticed that as well. I, the logo is super cool. It's not Lincoln related at all. They are the rail splitter, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. They are the rail splitters, and it's like a kind of cool 70s looking kind of kind of logo. It reminds me of the old Purdue one, the old Boilermaker guy. Like, it's, it's pretty cool. I've driven by Lincoln, I don't know how many times, uh, Lincoln, Illinois, and I've never stopped. And I know that there's a you know, Lincoln Heritage Museum, there's all kinds of cool stuff that way. I have to go. Um, I just haven't haven't had an opportunity to do that yet. So um, I that one also jumped out at me, um, and I was considering uh, talking about that one, Nick. I actually decided, and I can't find the original post. I think it was on the Facebook group, the Abraham Lincoln Forum, uh, which is um, some pretty good stuff in that forum as well, or in that uh, Facebook group. Uh, but I did find the picture that was posted, so I can't give credit to the, the original person who, who kind of posted it. But it was a photograph from the uh, 10th um, edition, 10th time they did it, of the the United States of America Communist Party Convention, which was held in Chicago in May of 1938. Uh, So it was, looked like, I mean, I think it's in Chicago Stadium. It's a big gathering of people, and it's a huge stage, and there's probably like a 10-foot portrait of Vladimir Lenin on one side of the stage and then a 10 foot um, like on the floor of the stage and then a 10 foot one of Stalin on the other side and then hanging above it is like a 30 foot um, portrait of Abraham Lincoln 
and across the top of it it says democracy um really really a neat image um you know and i'd love to to know more about why they chose to put lincoln up there but um in 1938, which is, you know, uh, interesting time, right, right, right before fascism took over and World War II broke out, uh, the Communist Party of the United States convention in Chicago, um, their stage was uh, overlooked by a pretty menacing looking kind of Art Deco-y portrait of Abraham Lincoln under the word democracy at the Communist Party convention. So anyway, I thought that was pretty, pretty cool. Uh, so whoever posted that, if you're a listener, uh, thank you for posting that. I just found that to be quite interesting. We do read our iTunes reviews on the air. Um, so this is actually an update to a review. So I think I know who this is by, but we'll go ahead and read it because we read all of our reviews. So we encourage everyone to please uh, provide us some more reviews. And you can even update an old one if you would like to uh, to give us some feedback. Uh, update my original reviews below. I have followed this podcast with a full measure of devotion. Nice. Uh the group has continued to grow, and the program gets better and better. Although I'm not a rail splitter, joining my friends each week via this podcast makes me feel like one. Thanks for pouring yourselves into this work. Um, that was from Glass Half Full Mom. Um, and then uh, the original uh, post is on there as well. So thank you so much for that review. We, we work hard to try to deliver a good product. Anyone who listens to the show is a rail splitter. So you don't need – there's no there's – no, uh, formal uh declaration needed there's no ceremony uh if you listen you're a rail splitter uh so that's why we call it rail splitter nation so thank you glass half full mom uh and i'm so glad that you're able to join us every week um on the show and um we really we're really honored to have you so thank you for that review uh please give us everybody's a rail splitter but not everybody could be the favorite rail splitter i just want you to know that uh, so you don't get this point down the road. Yeah. <laughs> so, hashtag uh, team Nick or hashtag the other two. That's right. That's right. Yep. And we're I think we're still down by quite a lot. Um, so anyway, uh, we do have another weekly feature, which is called This Week in Lincoln, in which we talk about a example of Lincoln showing up in pop culture or somewhere other than a history book that we found interesting. And Nick, hashtag everyone's favorite rail splitter, has brought us the... This week in Lincoln this week. Nick, what do you got? So I was on Twitter or some social media thing, and I came across uh, Street Fighter Fives coming out, which I didn't even know we had that many. I felt like Street Fighter finished when I became an adult. They peaked at but, two. Two was so good. Why would you need to keep going? Yeah, two was the best. Yeah. Um, but they have five. And there is a character um, that is part of five that's getting some play. Um, because the dude looks like a super roided out modern steampunk Lincoln. Um, he's basically got a you know a top hat. He's got kind of like a like a vest and a shirt. Um, he's got the beard going and everything, and he whoops ass. So obviously, it would lead you to believe that it's Lincoln. It's not named Lincoln though, um, but it is pretty awesome. So I would check it out. Uh, it's definitely great. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that's it. it. It's it's something else. It's definitely worth taking a look at, and I'm sure it is probably the best fighter in Street Fighter V. So, yeah, when Nick told me about it, um, I kind of had, like, a picture in my mind's eye of what he might look like, and then I looked him up. Like, uh, I didn't, I wasn't prepared for, like, the top hat and um, 
the beard. Uh, it's not. I, I thought it would be just kind of like a skinny looking kind of guy. Um, but uh, it looks very much like Lincoln. The only thing is like his beard appears to not be quite as dark uh, yeah. as, as Lincoln. Um, and his name, uh, he's a Muay Thai brawler and a uh, crony of M. Bison. And he is simply called G. <laughs> okay. I, I have a feeling there might be a backstory revealed, maybe some somewhere in the gameplay. So, um, so maybe yeah, maybe we'll have to talk about uh, about Jeremy from the. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the video game podcast. Uh, Games Day. Games Day. How do I not remember that? It's so like very simply put. No one, I don't. You know? <laughs> the Games Day podcast. You'll have to talk about from Jeremy from there about. Uh, I will the, ask the him if, if any of them are playing that game. If I'm not, pretty sure be. the G stands for the Great Emancipator. How could it not? Yeah, of course. So, uh, anyway, we will we will bring you more. Maybe we'll even we'll even fight each other, Lincoln against G against G, uh, in Street Fighter Five when it does come out. So, uh, thank you once again for listening to our Contemporaries of Lincoln episode. We will be back with a new episode next week, uh, so pay attention for that coming out. Uh, we come out with a new show every week. Last week we talked about Joshua Speed and had wonderful user-submitted content uh, from Andrea. Thank you once again for that last week. Uh, we really enjoyed doing that and kind of adding that dimension to our show as well. So for Rail Splitter Mary and Rail Splitter Nick, my name is Jeremy, thanking you for listening and reminding you once again to continue to walk the world with malice toward none and with charity for all, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>